So welcome to this episode of the Radix Nutrition Podcast. This week we're lucky to have an interview with Luke Taylor. Luke has spent the last 10 years honing and delivering his innovative, tailored four-pillar model through his long-standing commercial business, Taylor Health and Performance. The comprehensive model bridges the gap between the latest scientific discoveries and the commercial applications of advanced holistic health practices, serving the health and human optimization market. Luke has worked with many international high performance, and today he's here with us to explain his journey and the future as he sees it. So welcome, Luke. Thank you for being here. And oh, I'm just going to say, absolutely, thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, so it's, it's a real pleasure. We've, we've uh, you know, met you a few years ago, and we've been a big fan of yours over the years, and really looking forward to learn a little bit more about your background and where you see the future going. And... Uh, introducing you know our audience to you so that they may benefit from from your unique knowledge so i thought just to begin what if you start by just telling us about uh, where your passion and interest in your in your area of expertise came from yeah i, I guess it really came uh from my own personal experience as for like, i guess most people uh, in the health industry generally dealing with my own personal struggles and wanting to untap my true potential. Um, so for me, it's just the continuous curiosity of trying to unlock what I'm designed here for. Perfect. And w what age did that begin? Uh, when I was four years old. <laughs> Tell us about um, that. So when I was four years old, I was uh, diagnosed with, with uh, Elos Danos. Uh, so it's like EDS, just kind of keep it easy. Uh, so what that is, is a flexibility disorder. So what that means is I'm ligamentously mobile. So my joints can get into weird positions, um, but what that means is the muscle bellies as a result are extremely tight. Okay. Um, so all my muscle bellies are extremely tight, which means I'm extremely injury prone. Um, but with my joints being able to get into really random uh, ranges of motion means when I injure myself, I generally injure myself pretty good. Oh, no. um, so there's a combination of the overuse or if I do do a really good job, it's kind of cause a lot of pain. Uh, so yeah, like struggling with that from four years old, I was told that I will be potentially wheelchair bound as an adult if I uh, wasn't active and didn't do 60 minutes of stretching a day. Uh, so from an early age, I had a lot of discipline um, because I didn't want to be wheelchair bound. Uh, wow. And, uh, you know, um, you obviously throughout your, your, um, your childhood, you were you're a pretty serious athlete. Yeah, um, and that was kind of built somewhat from a necessity because um, I was, you know, had to kind of move, but also came from a very much a rugby household. Uh, so rugby was a natural line of passage, and that was where I was identified with EDS because I was running around the field like a grandpa at four years old, uh, like a little shuffle. Um, so that led me down the whole route. Before I got diagnosed with it, I went to like uh, podiatrists, went to all these different kind of specialists, and eventually got diagnosed with that. So. Yeah, um, rugby was my my life from about four to twenty one, and obviously not the best choice of sport when you're extremely injury prone. Yeah, I'd bet possibly the worst. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely in the top uh, echelon to that for sure. Wow, and um, then you led into another sport. Yeah, so that kind of stemmed from my when I finished up in rugby uh, when I was about twenty one. Uh, I pretty much had a horrible rugby season. I was running. Uh, I was captain, so I was 80, playing 80 minutes a game. Um, and throughout the season, I sprained both ankles so many times, created bone spurs, had overused knee injuries as a result, um, left SIJ, so left lower back, separated both shoulders multiple times, dislocated elbow, and broke both wrists. That was just in one season. So 
at the end of that season, I was left pretty battered and bruised. And at the time, you know, told classic rugby mentality of just toughen up and push on through. And I've obviously, with all my injury history, I have quite a high pain threshold, so I could push through it. And did what I was told and had some anti-inflammatories and um, suppressed it and went to a strapping clinic and strapped myself pretty much head to toe every game. But yeah, at the end of that season, I was pretty much left, yeah, battered and bruised and couldn't even walk. I couldn't even like run, sorry. Um, but even walking was an issue really, to be honest. Um, so I w that led me down a journey of about three years, going to see every single specialist, trying to get it sorted. And pretty much told me I'll never run again. And I said, screw that. And at this point I was uh, studying uh, sporting exercise science. So I dove into the literature to identify it myself because no one else was giving me answers and they just said for me to take up uh, swimming or some low impact sport. Uh, but for me, running at that time was my mental health. So yeah, I had to, again, dive into the literature, figure out what was going on. And for me, that's where the kind of the four pillar model that you mentioned earlier um, kind of stemmed from. Uh, so I was treating people, I was kind of a rehab specialist at this point. That was my avenue because obviously I'd rehab myself so many times I could sympathise with every injury that people were dealing with. I knew all the, the movements that we should be doing to kind of rehab any kind of particular injury. Uh, but it wasn't until then when I started to cultivate that that wasn't enough. Uh, there was a few pillars missing. So that's when I identified that mindset, lifestyle, nutrition, um, before movement. Um, so it's really important that it's in that order uh, because too often people start with movement in mind and generally they're just going to cause more harm than good. And that's what I was doing in that three-year period was trying to solve it through movement. But until I actually stopped and looked at the research and identified I had chronic inflammation. Um, I was adrenally screwed. Uh, so uh, way too much stress hormones. So my cortisol uh, was all out of whack. Um, and yeah, I was had mold toxicity as well. So my body was just chronically inflamed and stressed. And because of that, the, move, the, the injuries couldn't heal themselves. So I had to really take a step back and address the foundations. So obviously that was the mindset and the lifestyle and the nutrition. I think... Um, you illustrate it perfectly in your in what you've just said but one thing that's always really jumped off the page to us with you is that you really walk the talk and everything that you speak about um, you have first-hand experience mm. both in what it's like to uh, you know go through a journey or a life or a sporting career suffering from that but you you, you have a fairly uh, powerful understanding of how best to resolve that um, from uh, perhaps such a tricky journey as an athlete. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it just is really impressive to me how deep your knowledge goes in those areas. So, um, you know, where to begin, I, I <laughs> guess. But um, Well, before we jump to that, should, should we talk about, um, so pretty much how I proved that point that yeah. um, the, the four pillar philosophy might be a good place to go to next, yeah. just before we kind of move on. Um, so pretty much after that three years of being told I'd never be able to run again, I got to the point of running again after addressing the foundations. Uh, and as soon as I, my first run, I remember this run very vividly. And at the time I was like, I'm back, this is good. Um, but I knew at the same time I couldn't just go back to where I was and had to slowly build up. But that's where I set the goal. And cause to answer your question before, you know, I went into other sporting endeavours um, and that's when I decided to do Ironman. Uh, I wasn't just going to run again. Um, I wanted to prove this philosophy by doing an Ironman. Yeah, you chose an easy event to get back into. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Start, start yeah. small, right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
And how was that? Oh, it was an amazing experience um, because the curiosity had been there for my whole life because I'm, I love to kind of push the limits, right? And to me, I see Ironman as the, the sport which embodies that, both mentally and physically. Uh, and having to schedule your life around that is... I, I guess, Luke, um, just for those that aren't uh, totally aware, just talk us through an Ironman event. The, yeah, the good point. How hard it is and the length, because, uh, <laughs> you know, I've never obviously done an Ironman, but harder than a lot of people are aware of, so just talk yeah. us through that. Okay, so you start with a 4K swim, followed by a 180K bike, uh, followed by a marathon. Um, so I could have gone out and just, you know, done a 10K run and, like, celebrated, which I, I did do those, right, and the build-up towards it, but I really wanted to kind of prove it by doing a marathon, first and foremost, but not just a marathon, a marathon after a 4K bike and 180K yeah. Um, uh, sorry, 4K bike, 4K swim and 180K bike. Yeah. Yeah. And where did you do your Ironman? A Topol. Incredible. Yeah. Okay, and um, what what was your build-up to that like, managing this uh, injury rehabilitation? Yeah, so once I kind of uh, addressed the foundations and treated the actual cause, not the symptoms, um, I was obviously able to kind of keep building up, but obviously we're still suffering with EDS or Elastanos. I had to be very... Uh, recovery is an important part for me um, and it always will be an important part for me because that's just um, how I keep myself going. Uh, yeah. So I had to really take a different approach to Ironman and what I wanted to prove with Ironman as well is because I deal with so many time poor clients is how can we strip back and come back to first principles and um, do an Ironman in a minimal viable way. Um, so how can I get the most um, with the least I guess. Um, so really focusing on efficiency. So I began to really hack it. Instead of doing 20 to 30 hours of training a week, um, I physically couldn't do that because I was running a business. Um, so how, how could I do that? So I was like, okay, I, I believe I should be able to do this by looking at you know, what I had to achieve with 10 to 12 hours max a week. Um, so I became really critical and efficient on how I trained. Um, and then the recovery was the most important part around that, which I think is often overlooked. So prioritizing sleep, nutrition, um, having a great mindset, um, these kind of foundational pillars. It's great to hear you say that. I, um, uh, when I was a cyclist, uh, later in my career, um, you know, you, you start off in typically an endurance sport, and I think cycling, the traditional side of it, is chronically bad for just focusing on volume. Yep. Um, I followed that for years, and... Uh, I didn't need to. I, I, you know, before cycling, I was a swimmer. Where there's a there's a reasonably good emphasis on quality, although that that does have a darker side just around quantity as well. But later in my cycling career, just a realization, and and it was made popular by some of Team Sky and, and mm. Dave Brailsford's. Um, he, he, they're really focusing on quality, but I think almost everyone doesn't get that. Like, if you focus on volume. It, it is inevitable that it will end in burnout. Um, it, and, and you're always constrained by what your body, uh, the workload it can take, and, and that your recovery opportunity where the fundamental adaptation takes yep. takes place, right? So uh, it sounds like you had this realization, uh, you know, in the presence of quite a, quite a forced and, and heavy constraint mm. on what you could do. but. Um, I, I think not, not a lot of athletes realise that and they don't realise that 
you just have this limited opportunity to get as much out of it as possible, right? And, and obviously, as, you, as, as we all progress and, and other commitments come on board, we realize how short, uh, short we are on time. Mm. Um, but just a bigger and bigger emphasis on quality. Yeah. And um, obviously, quality in your, your training stimulus and then also in your recovery opportunity, right? And Absolutely. Um, you know, that's one thing if I could go back to when I was a kid. Um, I think I was reasonably aware throughout my career at times, but I'd, I'd just try harder on that. Mm. And that. You know, there are a lot of bike rides, six, seven hours. Yep. Um, and, you know, one would take pride on the clock. Yep. Um, and you look back and, and you sort of look back at training file, especially in hindsight, and you realize that was mostly junk. You're in the grey zone. Yeah, it's just, you, you know, you're just working your way towards saddle sores and just general fatigue. <laughs> um, and then, you know, there's just not a great deal of adaptation around that. And I remember um, hearing of some athletes that didn't have an off-season, um, not through the volume aspect, but just that they, they focused on quality uh, and recovery and staying away from chronic fatigue mm. so much that they didn't need this you know, it's cycling, you know, might have a four month off season, which we go on binge and yeah, and a, <laughs> a lot of it because it's the only way you can recover from you know six, seven months of just chronic mm. overtraining. Yep. Um, which y y you know, for me, uh, resulted in, in my body. Uh, you know, I, 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 I just my health started to fail at the end of my cycling mm. career. Um, but yeah, you've had this same, same realization, honestly, and I think y you know, we if you look at a lot of elite athletes who are essentially teenagers and in their early 20s where the body is just very resilient and will take a lot of um, a lot of workload and will, will, will rebound um, it's kind of sad to see that in, a, in, in young athletes because you know that it's only the lucky few that are going to be able to tolerate and take that into a mm. professional career throughout their 20s and maybe 30s but for the rest of us you just need that really strong focus on on basically your as you call it your pillars or your foundational health right mm. what does it take to be really healthy um, and then allow your body and mind to perform at their best yeah and then I think the other thing on that as well is the precision nature of that mm. everybody's different so I know from my genetics and through um, all the kind of assessments and bio data I, I assess I know that my inflammation markers are terrible so I, I'm going to recover slower than others how do you measure that uh, so that's just genetics. Um, so or through genetics, you can do through organic acids as well, understanding, you know, the Krebs cycle. Um, I like, so I know for me, I am predisposed to a slower recovery. Um, and obviously with EDS as well, that stack on top of that is obviously can be, that's genetics as well. So layering upon that, I, I know I have to address it differently. And I think too often people see, uh, like, you know, the athletes that, the old old school athlete that just has been able to keep going and going, but they don't actually think about them as an individual. They yeah. think about them as the epitome of what they need to do. Um, and they may just have the perfect genetics that allows them to bounce back super quick. Um, I, I, I think also a lot of people, you know, particularly, you know, when, when you have that sort of situation where you're looking up to the, to the famous athlete on the front page of a magazine and you don't actually know them, you mm. don't actually know what their health is like on exactly. the back end of that, right? And, yeah. and it's not particularly healthy. Yep. It's a skinny fat, right? Yeah. 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 So too, too often people are like incredibly unhealthy on the inside, but because they've got a six pack and they, they're they winning a few races every now and then, they look amazing. But what they don't know is the slippery slope's about to come and that's going to kick them in the ass on the way out. I had, um, I, I won't put any names to it, uh, 
I was riding with a, uh, I think it was five or six uh, world tour riders once in Melbourne, and it was uh, it was uh, during the uh, Bay Crit series at the start of the year, and we're on a recovery ride, and I was lucky to join with them, and I must have been uh, 19, and uh, one of them who was probably one of the top five names in pro tour cycling at the time, um, front pack Tour de France, uh, had to rush off to an interview. And um, I remember them joking around, you know, what would you say? And it was just, I was just telling them the usual, you know, tell mm. them we've been doing 40 hours a week, tell them we've been there. And they hadn't. Yeah. And because why would you, right? Yeah. It's not, not smart. And I just remember suddenly realizing that what you read in a magazine around what these guys say they're doing, um, yeah, actually wasn't. Well, what, you know, they're not doing 40, 50 hours on the bike a week. Well, that's, and you can look at the research for that as well. So yeah. we know with pro athletes, they, they apply the 80-20 principle without even knowing it half the time. Yeah. So 20% is the intensity and the um, 80% is generally, you know, level, um, like really low level intensity. Um, yeah. So it's like an easy ride. And I think also the other discrepancy is when we join rides with the people that are a bit fitter than us, we end up being in zone three, zone four, where they're just in zone two. You know, it's like... Yeah there's a complete disparity. Because they're going faster, we think they're working harder, but actually that, for them, is their, their level. Their, yeah, um, and I, I think it's so easy when you train to have that sort of revision to just being in the middle of your zones, right? Yeah. And so you're neither you're neither recovering nor actually giving your body yeah. a clear Horrible gray zone. Yeah, and I, hey, I've done years of that. And I think that the, the other issue is that a lot of athletes, their passion lies in training or racing, mm. and that recovery is taken for granted. Um, and it's not uh, looked up to in the same way. But it, uh, the more you get into it and, and the more successful athletes you're around, you realise that actually what they really focus on is, is what they do off the pitch or off the court or off the bike and, mm. and their recovery routine. So what I'm really interested to hear about, if you could just talk through your pillars, um, I'm just keen to, to touch a little bit on where the realisations for each one came from and what mm. maybe you do about it. And then just to start talking about uh, where most people actually are in terms of that. Yeah, okay. So yeah, like it was cultivated over the last 10, 11 years of running tailored health and performance. Um, so there's no one point in time where they kind of all kind of came from, you know, I created language as I went along. Um, so many times I've been talking about things but not have the language necessarily to kind of impart that, but um, over time I've created that. So I guess the whole mindset, lifestyle, and nutrition kind of came at the same time, and that was when I was in that three-year period where I just got told I'd never run again. Um, and I think it was the realisation of chronic inflammation was the, the leading cause, which is the leading cause for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know, autoimmunity is chronic inflammation. Yeah. Uh, and that's what was leading to my gut issues, uh, where I, why I couldn't eat certain foods. It was what was leading to you know, my brain inflammation and my brain fog that I was getting... Um, and also uh, inflammation through mold toxicity. So, you know, the real foundation for me was inflammation and that's what I had to address for first and foremost. And to address inflammation, there's a number of ways you can do it. Um, and that really comes down to the mindset, lifestyle and nutrition predominantly, um, but also not overdoing movement. So understanding where to, you know, recover um, because inflammation is a stress. And we can only, if you think about uh, a cup, you can only have so much in that cup. And if that cup is overflowing, your body's not recovering, so therefore you're just continually breaking yourself down. So 
what I had to start doing was there was no one area that had to be focused on. It was we had to focus on everything. Uh, so very much taking the holistic approach and addressing everything at the same time. But again, knowing how important habit change is, you can't do everything at once. So there has to be a prioritization. We, um, we often try and do everything at once. So right. Oh, we do, especially us uh, athletes, right? <laughs> uh, I find with the athletes and the executives that I work with were what I define as a high performer. Um, so we generally try to do everything at once. And I am the biggest culprit for this. And I've caught myself time and time again and always have to strip myself back to first principles and realize, okay, this is not sustainable. Um, because like, I think it's important time to actually talk about habit change for it. Uh, because so often we have this big motivation, you know, it's first of the year. Um, so we're a uh, news resolution, let's just change everything. And the reason why these don't sustain is because we're not stacking on existing habits. We're just chucking everything in at once and we're living this optimal life, but motivation dwindles about three to four weeks down the line and then all of a sudden it's, you can't maintain it because it's just so beyond what you should be doing. So when I was kind of applying the, um, uh, addressing these kind of principles for myself, I had to, I continually would go too far, pull myself back, go too far, pull myself back, uh, as I kind of learned to kind of find my, um, my boundaries, I guess. Uh, but for me, I, come to, I came to identify mindset as being number one because the mindset was the element where I was overdoing it. Yeah. Um, because my mindset was wrong, I was pushing myself too hard. So that's why mindset is the first in the four pillar philosophy. Um, so I guess, yeah, I address mindset first, um, and through doing that, um, to give you some examples of some things I did, uh, I obviously had to regulate my uh, hypothalamus pituitary axis, so HPA axis, which is your kind of your stress axis. Yeah. Um, so you've probably heard of adrenal fatigue. Um, it's that's the more clinical name of it, I guess. Um, so that that was just essentially out of whack. So I had to balance that back up. Um, so the way I did that was integrating things like meditation. Um, really cultivating a really healthy mindset around how, life. How did you become aware of it? How did I become aware of it? Um, so testing, really. Um, so diagnostic testing. I did subjective questionnaires um, of like sim- symptom-based, yeah. um, first and foremost, and eventually went down the line of doing, you know, uh, Dutch testing, um, so doing, you know, cortisol panels and, yeah. So again, this journey of uh, self-awareness, realisation, yeah. first-hand experience. Yeah, it's, it's the kind of... I think the subjective and the quantitative is really important to be married together um, because too often you're either in one camp or the other camp. Um, So what we try to do at Tailored is bring the two together um, so they're synergistical, so they augment your life, essentially. Um, So, yeah, it's... And I find it, in particular with the high performers, they like the data. Um, So bringing that data to that subjective is really helpful because, like, okay, it's not me just making it up in my head. Um, There's actually some data to... Um, state this so it really helps with making that change um, so yeah that's kind of how I identified that I needed to address everything really so each thing had a different thing so for example um, with uh, mold toxicity you know it was a mycotoxin panel um, to help confirm that um, and uh, gut health was at the time was an IgG and IgA um, assessment where I identified you know gluten dairy uh, sesame um, and all that didn't agree with me again there's a lot of um, contradiction in IgG and IgA, so there's something we do need to be aware of, but there is no gold standard in really assessing intolerances at this point in time as well, uh, especially back when I did this eight years ago. Um, but at the time, you know, that was probably the best you could do, and it kind of got me into it and, you know, gave me the motivation to kind of start un- addressing those things. Um, 
And since then, I've obviously, and actually alongside that, I did still sampling to kind of understand, you know, what's my microbiome, what's going on. Um, yeah. So th those are the kind of things I did to identify um, yeah. that these were the causes. Okay. And then your next pillar. Yes, the next pillar was lifestyle. Um, this was probably one of the more critical ones because I, I really believe in the environment. You need to set yourself up for success uh, because if your environment doesn't set you up for success, you're just going to be yeah. uh, continually falling back. Uh, so that, that kind of came down to surrounding myself with the right people first and foremost. Uh, obviously stripping the mould out. <laughs> so being in Hamilton, a very um, prevalent um, location for mould, you know, because it's so damp. Uh, so obviously making sure I kept my room super clear from any kind of mould. It was mostly from my childhood. It wasn't actually currently, but keeping on top of that, making sure that there was nothing there to aggravate me and always moving to newer houses. I don't like old houses. As soon as I come into a damp environment, I can sense it um, now. I, I had a... a uh interesting realization when i was an athlete used to occasionally use a altitude tent yep um which was hepa filtered yeah and um even if i didn't uh use it at altitude um it was phenomenal the i used to suffer or I still suffer from allergies yeah and the difference between sleeping in a hepa filtered air environment for me was uh i i never used to i didn't used to drink alcohol at all but I, and I've barely ever had hangovers. But it was an incredible eye-opener for me. I didn't realize how much there was to gain by uh, mm. cleaning the air in my environment. Oh, that's massive. And a couple of, um, well, the first time, it took me a long time to figure out what it was. Mm. Because I was looking at an altitude tent, and I was thinking, this is a stressor, right? Yeah. So it should be damaging or impacting, negatively impacting mm. my sleep quality. And yet, I walk out of that environment feeling incredible. Mm but it goes away after about 15 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I realized it was my allergies and having HEPA filtered air and coming mm. out into what was an otherwise clean house, but again, he, he, pollen and, and yeah. stress, it would just be like a, a, a subtle but definitely detectable fog that would just descend on my body and my mind. Yeah. Um, and I, I was fortunate to have that realization, um, but it, it, it's pretty incredible what we go through in our environments and, mm. and you're not always familiar with uh, how you will feel if you remove those stresses. Yeah, and that sleep was a big issue for me in my lifestyle as well. Um, so that's why I started to create my sleep sanctuary, right? Mm. Like really, like you can pretty much think of being awake as brain damage and asleep as brain repair. Yeah. Um, and it's really important to understand the differences there. And it's not necessarily meaning being awake is terrible, <laughs> like, you know, we need to live and stuff, but your brain is deteriorating throughout the day. And we need to have those deep stages of restorative sleep to recover. So, for example, um, in our deep sleep. And adapt, right? Yeah. I mean, if you look at this is actually where the excitement happens, yeah. right? This is where we, we, we move on as a... As a, as a you know, this is where, you know, your, your learnings, to, you know, mm. settle in your physical adaptations take place. So yeah, sleep I think is a huge deal, but sorry, go on. Yeah, so I was just gonna pretty much break into that really. So you know, in your deep sleep, your kind of earlier stage of the night. So we have predominantly most of our deep sleep in the late, just be kind of around that midnight, like from about 10.30 onwards um, uh, to the early hours of the morning. Um, and then we'll go into a REM later in the night. Um, so more towards the early hours of the morning. So for me, it's between like a predominantly a 5 a.m. to 6.30. That's my predominant bout of REM. Um, but in our deep st stage, uh, this is our delta wave stage. So this is when we're in a really deep um, deep sleep where we're kind of recovering. So this is where our glymphatic system works. So if we're thinking about a system what is 
uh, like if you're familiar with the lymphatic system, that is, you know, our blood. That's what pumps and flushes the toxins um, through our blood system. But then we've got our glymphatic system, which is this, pretty much the same thing. It's the garbage clearing system for our brain. Yeah. And if we're not getting that deep sleep, so say we're drinking alcohol or we're um, not getting to bed till the early hours of the morning, uh, we're not getting that deep restorative sleep. So therefore, your glymphatic system's not working. What you're getting is a buildup of tau proteins and beta amyloids. And these are precursors to neurodegenerative diseases. So um, yeah, that's obviously going to have a massive impact on your long term. Um, yeah. But uh, you, that, this is where the brain healing is occurring. So if you're not healing, you're just continually deteriorating. So um, me, I'm obviously passionate about longevity and I don't want Alzheimer's and dementia, especially post my concussion two years ago. Um, I'm even more critical of that these days. And at the time uh, when I was going through this, I was still studying. So I was doing previously doing all-nighters, dosed up on caffeine, um, trying to you know get it all in. But what I started to identify was that wasn't healthy. So I created a sleep sanctuary, prioritised sleep, because I wasn't getting the memory consolidation. I wasn't getting the emotional reset of the REM sleep. Um, so I got, got those things. And then obviously my productivity increased. My brain fog cleared up. Um, so what is your sleep sanctuary? <laughs> Uh, so that's obviously evolved over the years. Yeah. Um, so the number of things. Uh, so trying to keep uh, airflow, as, as you talked about. So we're going to get negative ions uh, through um, fresh airflow. So always keeping a window cracked, even in winter, just to kind of keep the airflow going is going to be important. Uh, blacking out. Um, that's number one. We want to get all light out of our, um, our sleep environment. Uh, what else do I do? <laughs> so I have a number of technologies I use to augment it as well. So I'll talk about the foundations first, and I kind of yeah. talk what I kind of layer upon that. Um, because I, 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 sorry, I think for that is key as well. Most of the benefit you have to get the foundations in place. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we start there. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. I hundred percent agree because I don't believe you should be augmenting your life because this is again what I see with athletes and like high performers in general. They want to just go for the biggest biohack. The real gains are in yeah. getting the basics right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that sounds with circadian rhythm. So my evening routine starts in my morning. Uh, so getting out, getting ten minutes of direct sunlight, and getting moving, getting grounding. Uh, so getting out onto nature. Um, so I'm lucky enough to live on a farm. Um, so every morning I wake up, walk around um, the farm barefoot um, and making sure I'm getting as much unprotected sun as possible. So no sunglasses, um, as much skin exposure as possible um, and just absorbing that sun. And that's a big part. Obviously getting some movement in there as well. Yeah. Um, but then throughout the day you want to also in the afternoon is the other time where we set our circadian rhythm so we wonder as the sun's going down also expose ourselves to the sun um so that's obviously not my sleep environment but these are important things i want to kind of mention to kind of uh underpin the importance of setting that system up and then coming into the evening hours we want to be reducing that kind of blue light um, because obviously that's not natural if we're looking from an evolutionary perspective we want to be stripping away any kind of blue light that's the same frequency as the sun so if the sun's gone down and you're exposing yourself to blue light that's going to be quite damaging so we need to strip that back as much as possible um, and try to allow the body to unwind so I use a three two one principle so three hours before bed I have my last meal um, two hours before bed I stop working and last hour is no technology uh, and that's kind of how because I think often people think sleep is just off switch um, but it's not an off switch, so we need to really down-regulate down the system. Um, and then for me, uh, yeah, I obviously, there's some really cool techniques which you can do because what really regulates sleep is your temperature. So uh, hacking the temperature is quite an interesting thing you can start to play around with. So 
having a hot shower or for us, um, we have a spa every night. Um, that kind of increases our temperature um, to a high point, which you think, because to, to get into a deep shower of sleep, we need to drop by one to two degrees. Yes. Um, but you think having a hot shower or a hot spa is going to be like the worst thing for you, but actually what that does is it increases the blood to your peripherals, which reduces your core body temperature, which allows you to kind of get that deep restorative sleep. So having that hot shower or that hot bath or spa is a great way to kind of help down-regulate you, even though you think you're doing the opposite to what you should be doing. And what temperature is your room when you sleep? So yeah, that um, we, I don't do any AC or anything like that because obviously AC can be quite, uh, it's not fresh air. Yeah. Um, but what I do have, this is kind of coming to the technology side of it. Yeah. So I can tell you're itching to get there. <laughs> uh, so that's where I kind of layer upon technology. So I've got like an ULA. Um, so an ULA is a temperature controlled mattress, well, mattress protector. Yeah. Um, so something that sits in, on top of my uh, mattress that has water that channels through it. So I can regulate the temperature through that. So depending on what time of year, it depends on the temperature that I have, but I actually schedule it throughout the night to help enhance my um, sleep. So depending what stage I'm trying to achieve at the time depends on the temperature that I have. Okay, something I didn't know I needed. <laughs> I now immediately want. That oh, it's amazing, yeah. Oh, Summertime, yeah. it keeps you cool. Winter, it keeps you, you know, warm as well. So, And it's, there's, it's quite interesting when we start to look into the kind of science behind that and how our body cools and heats because too often people are doing it the wrong way. Yeah. Um, with, you know, like they put an ice pack um, on their stomach or... or um, around the back of their neck, but you're not gonna cool off that way. So there's interesting things we can start to look into. I, I think interesting for me would be my, uh, I find my sleep pretty heavily impacted by the room temperature. And obviously that's a seasonal shift as well. Yep. And, and so, uh, you know, going back to maybe that sort of performance mindset, when you have a variable that has an impact on your output, you just try and stabilize it around an ideal. Hmm. Um, but it, it is frustrating to, uh, you know, have a warm room and find that that wrecks a night's sleep. Yeah, oh, you definitely want a colder room. So ideally we want to be around that 17 to 21 degrees. Yeah. Um, so we always want to strive for that wherever possible. Uh, and there's a number of ways you can do that. And the reason we want a colder room, even in winter, like we still want that cold room, is because that's how your body cools off. So inside the blankets, so if you can have as many blankets as you need to kind of keep you warm, but it's really important to have that cold room because that's how your body can cool off to kind of regulate your temperature. Yeah. So for those that don't have an ULA, um, or an eight sleep or you know something similar to similar device you can um, just by chucking a limb out uh, so a hand a foot um, these have uh, just some surface area well yeah, they have um, so no hair follicles in these areas which actually allows this absorption so um, they're, they're a really amazing way just to kind of it's the body's regulation so there's some cool technologies coming out at the moment which are like you can hold onto a hand like from a recovery perspective and a sleep perspective um, so there's boxes now using these devices and, and it goes onto one hand which cools their whole body down so in between rounds they're recovering at a higher level um, which allows them to not get fatigued um, so it's interesting from a recovery perspective but also from a sleep perspective as well so okay yeah. so the, the fundamentals we've covered you want a quiet a dark room yep you want to be away from technology yep you have a three two one principle that i think for a lot of people um, would help reinforce things that they already know, but it's so easy to stray away from those yep. those general principles for a good night's sleep. Absolutely. And then we've touched a little bit on the technology, but is, is there anything else you would use for tracking or giving feedback into sleep quality? <laughs> uh, so I use a number of different devices. So like I'm, I'm on the edge, right? So I currently have, mm, I'm testing, like I've tested the world's greatest biotechnologies and for the last 
two years. Um, yeah. but just been playing around with the best um, I can find, get my hands on. So I've done everything from sleeping with headbands. So I've had the Musius, I've had the the Dream Three. Um, so Musius is kind of like a clinical grade. Um, then the Dream Three, oh sorry, is like a consumer grade, and then Dream Three is like a clinical grade device. Uh, EEGs, and then I've also got a brain co coming in. Um, so got a new like um, one just on the way at the moment. Um, but those those three, for example, um, are not really great from a um, usability experience. I'm not going to be able to get any of my um, clients to necessarily wear those unless they're a clinical case. So you're, you're learning, there. you're experimenting. Oh, absolutely. So I'm in the geeky phase, and that probably makes a bit more sense as we kind of go through this conversation and talk more about what my next steps are. Um, but then I've uh, had probably had the aura the longest, um, so I love the aura. Um, I, because what I love about it the most is it's invasive. Unlike the headbands, yeah. um, it's comfortable. You don't even notice you're wearing it. And when I'm trying to uh, guide clients, for example, I find it's the most powerful device because it's a device that they'll wear. Yeah. Because I think there's, when we're looking at devices, the biggest thing that is often forgotten is we think about the data, but we forget about the usability and the behavioural psychology elements around that. So what we try to focus on is what will people wear and utilise because if we're not getting any data it doesn't matter how good the device is and I've found the Aura to probably be really powerful for that. Uh, from a clinical grade um, we have Bystrap um, is another device I use um, and I've used quite frequently. They've got a new device coming out soon which I'm really excited for um, and then I've got the Withings as well. Um, <laughs> so like at the moment I'm kind of comparing these three because uh, they're all very similar devices from activity through to recovery through to sleep. Um, so these are the ones I'm testing at the moment, but I've also, you know, like the Whoop, uh, what else have I done? Um, just yeah, all sorts of devices, really. So I guess it's just a, a side question. How do you find, uh, when you look at uh, the rise of wearable technology, and we've got some very mainstream brands, you know, Google, Samsung, and mm. Apple moving into it, into it with their devices and health kits, how do you compare that environment to one of specialist brands? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting thing. Like, um, so for me, what I do f is I look at the research. Um, so I want to see what has the most validity in the technology. Um, so what is the closest to the gold standard? So for example, there was a good um, study came out recently, probably March. Uh, they had the aura against the kind of gold standard ECG um, and testing its um, ability of accuracy, and it was yeah. within like zero point two percent. So a zero point zero two. Um, yeah. Point zero two, sorry. <laughs> so super accurate yeah. um, in comparative to the gold standard. So for me, it's a very low invasive product, which is going to get more accurate kind of sleep um, because you don't actually change the way you sleep. Like for example, when I wear the headbands, you know, I find I'm uncomfortable, so I'm not having good night's sleep. Or if I went to a sleep clinic and I was hooked up to a big machine, mm. that's not, not normal. It's uh, not normal. Um, where this doesn't change. So. We used to. Um a little bit of a tangent, but I was uh, when I started my cycling uh, career, I was lucky to get an SRM at a pretty early age, and uh, I remember people saying, you know, it's not as, in, it, you know, maybe they're not as accurate as a, a lab-based ergon. Uh, yeah. Um, or you know, why would you invest so much in an SRM when you can just go to a lab and be told your numbers? But the reason was it was close enough and it enabled you exactly. to gather data on a daily basis. Yeah. And, and view a far, far larger data set. And it was interesting on that. Um, I was 16, 15 when I had, was fortunate enough to get an SRM. A lot of naysayers 
<laughs> and, and now they're absolutely everywhere. Absolutely. Like it's um, the dynamic versus the static, right? Like sitting yeah. on a, an erg versus um, being on the road is completely different. You got the, all the... 100%. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, 100%. Like, like with it comes to that lifestyle element, right? Like it makes sense to me, but yeah, there's often uh, the zealots, I guess, that want... And I, I think for me, and I, which I know is a big passion for you, it's, it's uh, not just capturing data or storing, it, it's how to interpret it towards that goal. Mm. So I, we, can, we can get to that, I, I guess. I know you're itching to talk about that. <laughs> but hey, we're on the sleep side. Yep. So we'll just continue going through uh, what you've learned to be the foundations of, of optimal performance. But was it nutrition that was next? Yes, nutrition was next, absolutely. Um, so... Um, yeah, uh, from that standpoint, just addressing my gut health first and foremost. Mm. So a lot of information. Obviously, I've identified that gut, uh, gluten and dairy were terrible for me along with a number of other um, foods. And so since then, for the last eight years, I guess I haven't had either of those foods. Yeah. I have them every now and then to kind of see how my response goes or it's an accident. Sometimes the food yeah. just sneaks in. Um, but for me, I just don't enjoy having them. I don't think anyone should have gluten. Um, I used to be on the belief that you know some c- people can handle gluten, uh, but now um, I, I think for me, we, I've had arguments over the years with with gluten yeah. and a lot of mainstream nutritionists. That the trick for me, it's not whether some people can tolerate gluten or not. It's the fact that I can't see any correlation between an inherently natural and and healthy food mm. and gluten. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah. And then on top of that as well, just because you can handle a little bit of others doesn't mean you're not getting an immune response. No. Um, so there's still that inflammation um, boost, which is like for me... It's just below threshold sure. for most yeah. people, right? It's exactly. just not detectable. Yeah, and it's and not and optimal. And that could be because their body literacy is not there. They don't understand sure. their own body. Yeah. So they don't understand what's going on. Like for me, I, I was chronically bloated for 21 years with no understanding of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I was a high-level rugby player, you know, playing um, all the time and was super fit, doing really well. But I was chronically bloated and brain fog and all these kind of symptoms that you just don't know until you kind of strip it back and you remove it and you're like, oh, this is what a healthy body should feel like. And then once I do that, people ask me, like, do you not miss gluten and dairy? I'm like, hell no. Like, the yeah. way I feel right now, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going back. I, I, uh, I had a realisation when, when I was a kid training um, and I can't remember why I dropped gluten from my diet, but I, I realised it a young age that I could just wreck my next day by having mm. gluten yep. and um, what was the point yeah absolutely you know I would I could do something at 6pm the day before that would just wreck my 8am training session the next day and it took me a while to get the perception of that but when you realise it yeah um, the trade off was pretty easy to make I just don't need to do that and I yeah. you know it's the same it, I mean I have it now around sleep that uh, it's so easy to give away something in an evening um, at, at the cost of destroying your productivity and happiness the mm. next day, which is yeah. most evening tasks are pretty low low value, right? I mean, yep. you just need to be relaxing. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and, and then for, for Radix, at least, you're stepping into a, a very, very fast-paced environment where you want to give your best. Mm. And it's just not a trade-off that I, I would take lightly or want to make anymore. But mm. I think... You know, you, you're also speaking to just the value of the of the athlete coach relationship, right? Where yep. you again now through your experiences and understanding, you know, it took you 21 years, but you can bring that to someone a lot faster, which yep. is of course the benefit of working with someone such as yourself with that experience. Yep. But for me, 
you, you know, I, I know a lot of uh, awareness has come to this term, marginal gains yep. now, which is really only defining what has always been there, right? That mm. if, if we go through and optimize a number of things, we can come out in aggregate with a with an easier high performance environment. But I, I just never was able to see a correlate. Why would you really want gluten? Mm. You know, if, if you're chasing nutrient density, yeah, you won't find gluten in much in the equation. Yeah. Um, at least it's always it's been it for us, but I think a lot of people just don't yet have that perception. Yeah. Um, slowly changing, I think. People are starting to become aware of it, but it's just so slow. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, um, hey, hey, interesting. So uh, carry on. Yeah, so obviously gut health is number one. You know, we yeah. know one third of all our small molecules are created in our gut. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where it starts. But it's also understanding that it's a two-way pathway between the brain and the gut as well. So really doing everything we can to kind of support that. Um, so, yeah, obviously reducing inflammation as much as possible. So I'm not just going for gluten and dairy that are um, inflammatory for me. Um, just on dairy as well, I do think some people can handle dairy. Um, it really depends on your lineage um, to where you kind of come from. Um, but for me, it doesn't agree with me at all. Um, so that's why I removed that. Gluten, on the other hand, I don't think anyone should have. Yeah. Um, so this is just personally what works for me as I remove dairy because it can be nutrient dense if you can handle it. But uh, I, for me, it's just too infl inflammation, too much inflammation. So what I'm trying to do is strip back everything. What causes inflammation? How can I minimize that? So again, looking at first principles, what causes inflammation in the gut? Um, over the time, I've learned more and more things, and you know, I've gone I've gone down the rabbit holes of so many different uh, errors. You know, for example, fiber is what we've been thought to be as you know the, the key thing that we need to have. Um, but since I've kind of dived further and further into the research, fiber is actually not the solution. Uh, fiber is the the problem in many cases. So it's trying to like really understand what the literature is saying and just kind of tease these things out because I've been on both sides of it. You know, like in early days in nutrition, I was prescribing people to have seven meals a day, you know, like all these little snacks, you know, every two hours have something to eat. Um, but my whole philosophy has changed like that. And I think everyone should be keeping their philosophies very uh, malleable because if you stay so rigid, you're not going to keep up with the education um, and the literature that's coming out. Because what we're seeing is nutrition uh, science is so new yeah. uh, and, we, and it's so biased as we know from now we look at the food pyramid, for example, and we know how corrupt that is. Um, I was just going to say, it, it, at times, it's found to be totally wrong. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting, and I think again, you, you just uh, sorry before you carry on, yeah. but it, it's just that adherence towards simple best practices. Right? Absolutely. Carry on. Yeah. So, like, to not go into any kind of rabbit holes, but you know, just for those that aren't aware of the food pyramid and the issues around that, you know, just look at Ansel Keys, uh, his seven continent study. Uh, which was really 21, but he just you know stripped the other yeah. um, 14 out because they weren't really aligned with what he was wanting to kind of get with that perfect yeah. um, alignment. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, I've got lots of blogs on that. So, but generally, we're, nutrition science has been built around a lot of lies uh, because yeah. of the sugar industry and you know all these yeah. uh, money makers. Um, so, what we really need to do is come back to first principles, look at the research, but also who is creating the research, and understanding you know is it valid and what's the methodology behind it yeah. um, and I've been doing that over and over throughout these years and kind of gone down a number of rabbit holes and it's just um, identifying what works um, but what works especially for me so having that precision approach understanding my unique biochemistry um, and how I can enhance that yeah I think um, 
yeah, we could have a whole separate conversation around nutrition. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, most of what is out there is uh, to, to be watched with a very wary eye. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and finding your way back to executing well on, on the pillars or foundations of nutrition is very hard. Yep. And what we've, that, that's where Radix began. So if you, if you wanna, it's extremely valuable. It's pretty complicated. And basically you just wanna bring to market or give people the tools that they need to uh, optimize their own health through their own self-identified or, or identified with the like of an expert such as yourself. Mm the nutritional tools that enable them to be at their best however they want, wherever they want. And we found it pretty interesting picking our way through the food industry. Yeah, and, I can uh, imagine. I, I won't, yeah, less said the better, <laughs> but it, it, it's pretty interesting. And uh, again, y you know, as we were talking about before the podcast, for us, it's a technical challenge. Mm. If you wanna find your way back to the ideal, um, it's not so easy and we found that no one's done it yet. Yep. Um, and it, it can exist around supplements or, or, or parts that can make up a small minority of someone's dietary intake. And that's cool, but it's not where most of the gains are going to come from. So if you, 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 we, we would try and shift the 80% of someone's diet and not optimize the 20% yep. to go against a sort of Pareto principle. But yep. that, that's why the meal range for us gives us the ability to have a really significant impact on someone's diet and shift in a beneficial direction. Mm. And we, we've got a lot there as we better understand our role in that mm. uh, and optimize a meal to provide a higher and higher um, quality and quantity input in a beneficial direction for someone. But it's, nutrition's a pretty big one, but it, um, although we've specialized in it, you, you can't, nutrition can't make up for an unhealthy lifestyle or any of the other things that you've mentioned it, it sure as hell can't turn around you know it, it can only help yeah and i i, th I think um it's for, you, you know we're not in a situation where we'd, we'd ever want to say nutrition can solve everything because it's just not true hmm. there's nothing you can eat there's nothing you can do to fix a terrible night's sleep yeah and if you stack those back to back back and that's the norm uh, there's nothing that's going to make up for you not addressing that. Yeah. I think it's also coming back to the first principles again, right? Like um, so often people, like I said before, you know, they want the latest biohack or technology to enhance yeah. themselves. So like the high performers will generally take all the supplements in the world but have a terrible diet. I'm like, why? Let's start with the foundation of diet first. You know, let's get the basics sorted first. Yeah. But then beyond that, like take it even more simple. People don't chew their food anymore. Yeah. So simply chew your food, drink water, um, and be mindful when you're eating it. Because too often people will be sitting on their phone, eating, you know, like distracted. Um, so you're already setting yourself up into that sympathetic nervous, nervous system, which is, you know, your fight or flight. So you're not actually in your parasympathetic, you rest and digest, you know, and emphasize the digest. Yeah, no, um, the, the, the on switch is just continuously on. Oh, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think it's so important for people to just to be present with their food. Um, and you know, chewing. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think uh, one realization I had uh, when I was a kid training is that uh, when you get amongst really great performers or athletes, whether it be athletes or whether it be anywhere else, again, it's the fundamentals, but their diet is comprised of really fresh, really high quality natural foods, and they don't need to supplement 
mm. a tremendous amount. And it's it's never to say that you can't gain by supplementing. Yeah. It is just that you can't look past the value of the fundamentals and make up for it by supplements. Yeah. It's that's the build up, right? You've got to start yeah. somewhere and you start with the foundations. Yeah. Then you ladder on the one percenters. Yeah, and um I, I I find it interesting, uh, particularly if it, it maybe just as a sort of analogy, when when you're a kid and you get into a training environment, you'll have a coach that will tell you the value of warming up, mm. the value of focusing on quality in your main sets or main part of the workout, and then you're warming down and doing these basics. Mm. It's the first thing you learn, yep. and it's the first thing that most athletes then immediately dismiss, yep. and then it ends up being the most valuable. Because it's not cool or sexy, right? Like not at all. And, and, <laughs> yet, and yet, um, when you get older, you see why people people value it. Mm. Or, 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 or maybe it's too late and people don't. You know, so there's a lot of athletes that will drop out in their late teens and 20s just because yeah. they're burnt out. But there's a reason why Roger Federer is 40 and still going. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, nutrition, we could talk for, for a long time. <laughs> um, if, there's, if there's anything else in that, please explain, or we could just go on to the last... Part, oh, there's, there's so much yeah. like that <laughs> i could like again get our many rabbit holes it just depends um how far we want to go down um but yeah is there anything else you'd like to go into on that uh i think one thing that um i, I like what you guys are doing so uh would be looking at oils because uh, i think there's a lot of misconception around oils um yeah. too, too many people are just taking terrible oils so it's the seed-based oils the linoclaic acid you know the um horrible inflammatory-based oils, uh, which we, we don't want. We obviously want the balance between omega-3 and omega-6. Yeah. You can think of your omega-3 as your kind of your linoleic acid, your seed, uh, vegetable oils, and then you've got your, um, uh, your omega-3, which is your kind of your coming into your kind of veg um, olive oil and all those sort of, um, so you can get the balance in that way. Yeah. But what I find too many um, packaged foods in particular, uh, talking chips, we're talking every kind of packaged food, not yes. just healthy food, um, but even more in the uh, substitute foods. Yeah. So for example, the gluten-free, the vegan, they're just pumping these full of these horrible oils. But what I like about what you guys are doing is you're actually stripping it back and bring it back to good quality oils. Um, so. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that people need to address and also address how to prepare the oils as well, so not oxidising the oils. So yeah. I mean, we know the fish oil market is corrupt. Um, there was a target done on that, I don't know how many years ago now, but they identified, I think, about three on the market that were actually good. Um, they actually said what they were um, because what happens is in the shipping, if they're not in a dark container, um, they're exposed to sunlight, therefore they oxidise, which therefore makes them rancid, which makes them the opposite of what you want. That's inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory. Um, so what you guys are doing in the way of, you know, not um, oxidising your oils um, and the process of what you're doing there, I think, definitely needs to be talked about. We, yeah, hey, uh, we c I could talk for days on that. And... Um yeah, fascinating. So, I, I mean, for, for the radix side, what we've been doing uh, is drawing a much clearer focus onto what we want to do with our fatty acid profiles across all of our core products. So, if, if um, I can't go into too much of it, but we we've recently shifted to uh, New Zealand sourced, uh, very fresh, uh, extra virgin, cold pressed olive oil. And we've done that for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, one can be traceability. We can go and eyeball a supplier, know that we're happy with them, mm. see what they're doing. Uh, we're after the polyphenol content. 
Um, and, and there are so many health health ramifications or benefits to be gained from that. But freshness and just some of those basic principles. We and they they uh, it fascinates causes us problems. Mm. So if you get a really high polyphenol olive oil, it's pretty hardcore. Yeah, oh, And we've had to learn how to deal with that because we want to use it. Mm. Um, but from a formulation side, uh, for a lot of companies, the easiest thing is to use an old oxidized oil because mm. if the polyphenol content drops out, tastes of nothing, you can add mm. it into anything, and then it's very cheap. Yeah. It's, but it's 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 not good. So we've we've gotten a lot clearer on our design. We've gotten a lot clearer on our supply chain. And then it's pushed us to understand how best to uh, integrate that into our products, mm. uh, protect it from oxygen. So whether or not we can keep it under a nitrogen blanket right away throughout mm. uh, production, which we're, we're, we're pretty close to getting to now. Yeah. But it, 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 it for us has been the focus on getting really, really clear on what we want to do, why we want to do it, and then how best to make that true um, through technology application. Yeah, and but I, th I yeah. think for like people back at home, is like obviously this is really important from this product as well, but the simple things that they can add in to at home is using the right oil for the right temperature um, as yeah. well. So often people I see using coconut oil on a um, frying pan. Worst thing yeah. you can do, you can oxidize it. It's got a low smoke point. You've got to treat it like that. So it, it goes on top of um, uncooked stuff or very low um, yeah. um, smoke point. Uh, yep. So there's like understanding each oil in and the smoke point that is associated with it and storing them well, you know. So getting the extra virgin cold-pressed oil, even though it is double the price, um, yep. there's a reason it's double the price because it's actually there to support you not to break you down and making sure you store it right. Um, yep. If you To never buy a bottle, um, especially olive oil, of a clear bottle. It has to be dark. It has yeah. to be a dark bottle and it needs to be stored in a dark place. It's just these simple principles that we need to kind of bring back. And I think it's not talked about enough, so that's why I thought I'd better bring that up because it's just an easy thing to... There's a lot that we could do. We've, we've, been, um, we've been working with Athens University a little to better understand the technicalities behind mm. olive oil, what it can bring, um, and some of the nutritional compounds within that that can only be found, mm. be found in that. And it's... Again, it goes back to... Uh, some of the basics here that if if you want to benefit from the really uh potent beneficial side effects of some of these ingredients that only exist when it's fresh you've got to question how it's getting to the other side of the world yep. yeah. it's, it's not so easy and the cheapest thing mm. is to just not tell people that you're doing it the wrong way yeah um and for us it's it's been really fascinating to start dealing with some of the nutrition uh, sorry some of the prof uh, producers in new zealand mm and to get a way better handle on that. Um, but I, I think even on the biofeedback side, at some point, um, mm. for those who are interested in this, they'll be able to see uh, or measure the benefit of moving towards these, yeah, absolutely. these things. Um, and it would just come out of the darkness a little bit, I think, some of the, some of the what has been intangible. Yeah. Two different brands, same price, different supply chain, yeah. um, very different qualities. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, yeah, hey, we could talk for a long time. Yeah, we're, we're a, a new, Radix for us is about focusing on nutritional quality, nutrient quality, diversity, bringing together all of these uh, somewhat hard to understand, but definitely hard to execute in a busy daily life pieces and make it simpler, make the right thing simpler than doing the wrong thing. Mm. Um, and, and being able to give an ultra high quality meal to someone and they're able to uh, prepare it in 60 seconds um, 
we can get you an outstandingly healthy meal faster than most people can make it halfway through the queue at Subway. Yeah. And um, you kind of need to do that to shift people. If, if you look at the mass scale, you've got people that really, really care about diet and will invest a huge amount of effort um, into making sure it's done well. But I think you almost, for a lot of people, they don't know, they don't realize. But you kind of, we see you have a kind of a moral obligation to try and put forwards to, to, to make the right solution out compete the bad one. Yep. Um, and yeah, well, it's what we're trying to do. But t- hey, I won't go on about nutrition because <laughs> um, I'll talk about it too much. But the last pillar, m- mobility and movement and yep. exercise, and um, which, as you said at the start, is where most people are drawn to. Yeah. It, it's, like I was seeing it time and time again at the moment, you know, as uh, the get fit summer challenge you know get your six pack for summer or you know it's the pursuit of and I shallow stuff the right? shallow stuff yeah, yeah. like um, the things that actually is a six pack healthy you know like these are the questions we need to be asking you know we're in pursuit of this six pack because that's the ideal but is that actually healthy for you to have some people may be and it will be um, but for many others it's not um, yeah. it's at the cost of your energy your libido your um, your sleep quality, uh, like it's just not worth it in my eyes. And I think people need to start really addressing what is health to them. Yeah. Is it just looking good or is it actually feeling good? Um, and I'm just yeah, seeing every kind of gym and, at the moment and health, these challenges. health span, right? Yeah, health like, span, I mean, exactly. It, which I think is a term, a beautiful term that not enough people know. But exactly. Um, that there, there is a long tail to a lot of the detrimental habits that people have on a daily ha- a daily basis right yeah. so maybe you could talk a little bit about oh absolutely yeah um so just to understand health span lifespan um, lifespan is your your age so pretty much how long you can live for um which is all great but if you're hooked up to a machine not having a good quality of life doesn't sound like a life i want to have so it's about like you said health span which is that quality of life so living to you know beyond 100 with quality um yeah. And that, that's where the health span comes in. And yeah, these quick fix approaches, it's these plasters. Let's treat the symptoms. Let's treat what you would love to see, you know, like let, let's just get you as a poster. But you're not gonna be able to sustain that. Like you might get the six pack by summer, but are you gonna be able to keep that? No. And yeah. will you end up in a worse place where you started? Yep. Um, so we're, we're trying to flip that on the head at the moment. So to all the other 10 week challenges out there at Tailored, we're producing a 10 week challenge um, but to flip that on the head and actually apply the four pillar philosophy, so the mindset, the lifestyle, the nutrition, and the movement, because we're giving them the terminology they like, right? The 10 week challenge. Um, but really, what we're going to be preaching, well, not preaching, sorry, that's the wrong word, uh, advocating through that is um, to slow down, because yeah. uh, long term health is slow health. Um, so, really teaching people to move away um, from these quick fixes and actually address what is the. Um, the foundational issue, you know? So instead of just putting a plaster on the symptom, let's address the foundation and make sure you um, succeed long-term because obviously at Tailored um, Health and, um, Tailored Health and Performance and Tailored Technologies, my new business, um, we are solving uh, health span. Like that we wanna help people live longer, and healthier lives. And I, I think a key thing for a lot of people, or, or the realization comes that these, the, the beneficial behaviors or good habits compound, right? It may find its way into a, a community or a household through one member but when that person understands what they need to be at their best and what they short term long term and then it spreads to the rest of the family yep. if done well it's one of the best investments that people yeah. can make especially for a parent perhaps yeah. you know when you're yeah. raising 
a, a young family who would never know. Yeah, oh, you absolutely nailed it. And that's exactly what we do at Taylor. It's what I call the ripple effect. Yeah. Um, because where we differ again is we provide education. Yeah. We tell you why we do what we do. We don't just say, do this. We're not, we're not going to command you to do something. It's like, this is what um, will help you. Here's the principles and why we do this. Here's, if you want to know the depth of the physiology and the biochemistry of why we say this, this is it. Because um, yeah. everyone, you've got to meet them at where they're at, right? So um, we address people where they're at and then give them the education and tools and strategies so they're empowered. That, that's where the value of it comes from, right? That's, yeah, that's absolutely. if you want to affect long-term change yeah. and, and then, form habits. Yeah, and that's where the ripple effect comes in as well, right? Like you said, that one person comes back home and then they see their, their son struggling or something or um, their husband or partner, whatever it may be, and then they help them then they help their friends and then extended family. It's pretty family. powerful. And it's, yeah, because I think too often we're disconnected from what is actually true because of what the media tells us. Yep. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. I think a big, uh, just awareness for most people. Yeah. Like the intent would be there if they only knew. Yeah. Um, I think probably, you know, if you look in a sport environment, you have the athlete-coach relationship or you have a parent-child relationship. But I think if, it, if the awareness can just come to it and then uh, everything else is easy and clearly mapped out. And I, mm. I think we're, we're going to go through a fantastic technology shift, which perhaps brings us on to the next point. Um, better than perhaps I could have ever planned to do so. <laughs> but in a lot of areas that previously have just existed around, um, you know, you just have to appreciate you're doing the right things and maybe have a growing self-awareness to begin to pick up these subtle shifts in the right direction. We're going to enter an age here of biofeedback um, to, g to give you immediate feedback or gratification or reward for going in the right direction, right? So... Um, I'm, I'm aware that you're working on something, yep. um, but I'm, I'm also deeply interested to get your take on where you think the future of this is going to lie, because this is obviously going to be a global shift and global mm. awareness here. So just maybe just rift on that and say whatever you'd like to say. <laughs> Absolutely. So this kind of comes into, like you alluded to, you know, what I'm kind of working on now. So our, our new business, Tailored Technologies, uh, which is uh, codenamed Project Otto. Uh, so yeah. This, again, is a very exclusive program in which we're doing a, a two-year multivariate biodata project to deeply understand human beings because what we believe is going to happen is this um, augmentation of technology in humans um, to help us live a longer, healthier, uh, more enhanced life because what we're trying to do is augment it in a way where health is no longer a concern. If you have your health, you no longer need to think about, do I need to go plant-based or do I need to go carnivore you know like there's no longer these polarizing opinions of this is what I should do this is what I should do but research looks great on both sides what is what do I do yeah. um, instead we can tell you what precisionly you need um, through technology um, so yeah like obviously there's there's a bit of knitted in here for what we're going to do with Taylor Technologies but with um, what we see the, the world going to as well so if I just take a step back and um, say where the world is going, it's going to go to the combination of, yeah, like you said, biofeedback, um, really to enhance our body literacy. Um, there's two ways it could go. It could go in a way where we're just reliant on data. That's not the world I want. Um, I want the, the world where it's the combination of that data and that subjective. Um, so you've got the quantitative and the qualitative. Um, so we want to see the marriage of those two together. But also coupling upon that is that behavioural psychology. So a big part of what we're going to be doing is really focusing on 
how to nudge people in the right direction. And that's what I've learned over the last 10 years with running tailored health and performance and what I'll be bringing into it. So that's that four pillar model. Um, so stacking that on top of the, the subjective and the biofeedback um, to really empower change. So this is really the next evolution for us um, is to, to get the data really refined to the individual. Yeah. So what we can do is, um, yeah, to kind of break it back down to where we're going. I'm trying to not give away too much, but um, over the next two years, we're doing a multivariate biodata project, which we're going to deeply understand you as a human being. So what that involves is two years where we're kitting out with the world's best wearable technologies um, to understand the, the biofeedback, um, but also getting biofeedback through clinical diagnostics. Um, so you'll be doing an array of um, the best clinical diagnostics um, th every checkpoint throughout uh, the two years. So what we're getting is we're getting the chronic feedback from the checkpoint data um, plus with the live data of your wearables. And no one's doing this. This is an absolute world first uh, because anything that's been done somewhat similar to this has been done in a clinical basis. So looking at clinical populations such as, you know, maybe suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia, um, but no one's really done a study of this breadth um, with healthy populations. Um, and I say healthy uh, in a colloquial term because sure. um, but some people will not be healthy because... Um, one of... Uh health optimization in the absence of any significant disease. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's when I'm saying healthy populations, more from a study kind of um, perspective. Yeah. Um, so they wouldn't be considered clinical. Um, and yeah, what we're going to be doing is you're creating this world-first data set, which will allow us to create a human digital twin, which will be, again, another world-first. Um, so imagine yourself in the digital space. What we'll be able to do is run hundreds thousands of your lifetimes to identify what will work for you would um, plant-based work for you would carnival work for you um, is um, a supplement going to work for you or you know whatever it may be it's going to be like the google for your body essentially you can ask it the question what should i do and it will give you the answer because what it will know is it will know your unique uh, physiology and biochemistry i can't express how interesting <laughs> and uh, impressed I am at, at, at that and I, I'm sure you're in the right direction hmm. and I think um, all of this data is, is going to come to surface and it's the interpretation of that towards the beneficial goal where the real value is going to start sitting right so I, I just think we're probably on the, on the um, precipice here of quite a significant yeah. change in this world yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like there's so much changing that I don't think people are aware of yet. Like the technology's advancements are phenomenal. Um, and what we're predicting, because essentially what Taylor Technologies is, is a 500-year vision, a 15-year business plan. And I've only just kind of alluded to the next two years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what, we're seeing, what we're predicting, at least, is massive technological advancements, which is going to help speed up this whole process. And yeah, I don't think people realize how soon it's coming. Um, I, I, um, I've been talking about that for quite a while, years, and um, not not in the, quite the same way that you're you're talking about it here. But I don't have I don't find too many people you can talk about it with. Yeah, absolutely. And it frustrates me quite a lot. Yeah. And um, maybe a generational thing, um, but I, I think it's just uh, just awareness and mindset. Mm. Um, it's obviously going to happen. Yeah. 
and it's going to be huge. Yeah. And for a lot of people, it's going to happen uh, far faster than they know, and they're going to be taught things, or it's going to enable things that they just did not know existed. Yeah. Um, whether it be you know a CGM coming with an upcoming Apple Watch, people, you know, blood sugar goes from something that they they. You know, everyone should have a perception of their blood sugar mm. levels and how their Absolutely. body reacts. But most people don't. Most people don't know what blood sugar is. Yeah, or what a CGM is, right? So no, maybe no, you should even describe. Well, you, uh, hey, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, you can lead. <laughs> okay, so CGM is uh, obviously a, a really powerful technology, which has been in diabetes for I think 20 years now. I think it came out in like early 2000s. Um, so it's been used for a long period of time, but only in clinical populations. No one's really using healthy populations. There's a few companies that are starting to do that. So you've got uh, Levels in America, who's kind of starting to help you um, and get some body literacy around that. You've got Super Sapiens and the more athlete uh, side of it. Um, but these are very early days. People don't aren't really utilising these technologies, and that's one of the technologies that's part of our um, project because it's so powerful because you start to understand how each food responds to you uniquely because... We're all going to have different insulin responses because it depends on how metabolically flexible you are. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have metabolic disease, that's going to obviously have a I, bigger part. We were talking to someone a few weeks ago, and who I disagree with. <laughs> very nice person. Disagree with them. They were. They couldn't. CGMs have, as I understand it, been banned in a lot of professional sport. Mm. And then uh, someone was saying, but there's no use for them in professional sport because by the time a CGM can detect that your blood sugar is crashed, it may be too late. Whatever. Yeah. But zoom out. And let's say that you have an athlete over a, a, a longer time scale and you have a training plan and you're able to take that data and build it into a forecasted training plan. Mm. And you're able to look back over the prior two weeks and, and see that, yeah, maybe you did screw up a, mm. that last training block. Yeah. by not fueling properly. But it's no longer the minute-by-minute minute feedback. It's it's the aggregation of that and interpreting it to improve the next several weeks. Yeah. And I did that, my mind baffles me. And even even with um, we're looking at diabetes and looking at CGM and other technology, and, and you look over uh, maybe, we're all quite simple people, right? Mm. Certain set of habits. I drive to work every day. I have a certain set of training sessions, certain set of other habits. So if you can take data and overlay that over a fairly stable routine, yeah. I, yeah, you can just see a point where your Apple Watch or something similar is going to say, hey, on Wednesdays you normally do this, and you normally get that wrong. Yep. So Wednesday morning do this, Tuesday do that, a and the predictive element is going to be far more powerful and perhaps far simpler. Than most people realise, you know, but people we we think that we leave it, lead these very intricate lives where every day is different, but it's probably not. Oh, it's really not, and that's that's one of our key hypotheses. Yeah. Um, over the te technologies, we've got three. Um, so there's a minimal viable truth. Yeah. Um, so what we're looking for is what is the minimal viable truth of data sets that yeah. we can extrapolate out um, to deeply understand. Um, a human being and create the human scaffold in the digital space, so we can run the simulations. Um, the second one is uh, that we can create a digital twin, which we know we can. Um, so it's been done in infrastructure, um, it's been done in animals, uh, but it hasn't been done in humans. So we believe we can utilise that technology in humans. And then the third hypothesis is behavioural psychology. Yeah. Uh, because I think this is the most critical part of our whole project is 
we're going to be kidding people out with a whole bunch of technology, so we need to make it simple and actionable. Yeah. Um, so we're really focusing on the user experience, and we're looking at actually funding PhDs to help support this because if we can't, like I said earlier, you know, if we can't help people make the right choices, like it doesn't matter how good the data is, you're yeah. not going to do it. So therefore, we're flawed. Um, so we're spending a lot of time and effort into understanding that behaviour. Um, but it's, you described exactly what we're trying to create, which is that um, benevolent health companion that is with you yeah. on your journey with you. So, for example, if you, uh, it will link in with your calendar and we can scrape back and identify that there is a whole bunch of strategic meetings coming up and we know that you had a really big training weekend and you're just absolutely physiologically tapped. I, I, people don't know this is coming and oh, it's going to be yeah. so powerful and most of the things that we all get wrong are the simple things. Yeah, exactly. So we'll just give them the... the the actual strategies to implement to help support you. So maybe it's as simple as, you know, let's push these out a week or let's look at how we can nutritionally support these. Can yeah. we reduce inflammation? Can we heighten cognitive load? Maybe add some exogenous ketones or some ashwagandha to kind of help balance out the yeah. um, the stress response or, it, you know. Even the, sim I mean, it, it, it's going to turn into the relationship with a coach or the advisor or, 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 or the whoever that, most of us are not lucky enough to have hmm. yep. and, and virtually no one has with them at the time that they need it right yep. it's going to be the the friendly nudge on the wrist that you've got yep. an early start tomorrow morning you should go to bed nearly like an, yep. an hour later or the diabetic that y y you know through that uh, data set and the interpretation of we're able to put in place a improved routine yeah. that they may not be able to get through their traditional health care provider yeah, and, and it's just not that granular. Yeah, exactly. And uh, like, the the medical system, it just doesn't is not built to solve these issues, right? No, the medical it, it system never has been. Yeah, it's been to deal with chronic issues. Yeah. Um. So if you've got an acute injury or acute kind of sickness, or you're kind of yeah. really clinical grade, that's what they're designed there for. They're not designed for these lifestyle approaches. Um. So, and this people need it right now because we're so disconnected with our evolution. Um. Yeah. We uh, just damaging ourselves time and, and time out. I, 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 I don't know how it's going to go, but I, you can just see that these uh, these sort of personal health kits or data sets at some point in the future yeah. will be so much more powerful than any one-to-one -one relationships that we have throughout our lives, right? Yeah. You go to a great doctor, but you're lucky enough to see them three or four times, yeah. but they never know you that well. Exactly. And I think that's... Y y y computation will be the only way to really get through that, I think. So... Um, yeah. I won't, I could ask a hundred questions <laughs> um, and I won't go too deep, but I guess uh, we could sign off cool. and I just say thank you so much and it's, um, it's a real pleasure to, to have a chance to talk to you, to know more about what you're doing. Um, we're a big believer in what you do and we'll put some links in the show notes for people to try and find uh, more about your services. Cool. But thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Cool. No, thank you.